This is Space 101.1 KMGP, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to the special Oscar live broadcast of Cascade of History. Now, we're not actually paying attention to the Oscars. I was trying to make a, a dumb joke about how the show's going on and on and on. All Quiet on the Western Front keeps winning all the awards and hopes are that the show will be over before Christmas. Kind of a dumb joke for, for the history-minded people out there. Anyway, uh, hopefully it didn't set the tone badly with that bad Oscars joke here on the March 12th edition of Cascade of History here on Space 101.1 FM. I'm Felix Bennell. We're broadcasting live from the old historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station. I'm in the Master at Arms quarters right above the old main gate. Now Magnuson Park, of course, and Space 101.1 FM is a terrific community radio station. The website is space101fm.org. There's all sorts of great information there about other programs, ways you can support the station because we're completely supported by contributions from listeners and from some terrific local funders. We'll be spending the next hour, as we always do, every Sunday night at 8 p.m., whether it's daylight time or standard time. I guess it's daylight time now. We'll be having conversations with people doing interesting stuff in and about Pacific Northwest history. We have a really good show tonight, a nice, a nice mixture of guests. Um, in the second half of the show, we're going to speak with um, Chisa Ohata. She's a creative director of the Living Arts Program for the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. And that's uh, there's been an effort recently. It's kind of coming to a head to try to save an old building called the Yamaguchi Hotel in Portland. And we'll hear from uh, Chisao Hata about the efforts of that group, the Japanese American Museum of Oregon, as well as an uh, organization called Restore Oregon. Um, we're also going to do, I don't know if you remember last week, if you were tuned in last week or if you heard the last episode of the podcast, because we are available as a podcast at SoundCloud and pretty much every other podcast platform, just search Cascade of History. And it posts almost immediately after each live program every Sunday night. As we like to say, podcasts are a dime a dozen. Live broadcasts are two for a dollar. Um, we did play last week the first two installments of an old broadcast from 1938 that was uh, recorded at the J.C. Penney store in downtown Seattle when it was brand new, a show called Washington at Work. We have at least the next, uh, at least the next installment, maybe two installments of the show, always of that of that program. Depends how much stuff we get to tonight. Now. But our first guest, first of all, it was quite a roller coaster ride this past week for the cherry trees that line either side of Pike Street in downtown Seattle. This is in the block between 1st and 2nd Avenue. If you've been in downtown Seattle, particularly in the spring, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, Monday, those trees were doomed to being chopped down. And in fact, we actually had planned to have a guest named Ruth Danner on last week's episode of Cascade of History. We had technical difficulties. We couldn't get in touch with Ruth. Um, but on Monday, the trees were doomed to be chopped down. On Tuesday, this is just four days ago, six days ago, whatever it is, look at the calendar here, um, Mayor Bruce Harrell issued a stay of execution to gather more community input about those trees, and it seemed like maybe the trees were here to stay. Then by midday Friday, the cherry trees were doomed once again, and they might be coming down as early as tomorrow morning. Now, to help us try and sort out some of this tangled tale, our first guest tonight, I'm going to try to bring her on the phone right now. Can you hear me? Oh, hang on a second. There she is right there. 
My first guest is Taha Ibrahimi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, yep. terrific. I always love when the buttons work on the second try. <laughs> now, we, you and I were talking briefly uh, off air a moment before the show began that you have a book coming out um, about the street trees of Seattle. You're a Seattle author. and You've done a lot of research and other sorts of interesting projects over the years. But the reason we have you on the show tonight is to talk about these, I don't know, the, the, the cherry trees of Pike Street or the Pike Street cherry trees. And I saw some information you had shared with, I believe it was Cindy, at the Save the Market Entrance Group about mm-hmm. the, the, the history of those trees because, you know, I'm guilty of this myself. I work for a commercial radio station during the week. I get like a luxurious six or seven minutes to talk about a story sometimes, and that's, that's a long time on commercial radio. <laughs> but I figure you and I might take 15, 20 minutes tonight talking about what these trees are, what they represent, their history, and what's going to be lost in the fact they're now slated to be chopped down. So is that, is that, is that a fair assessment of what you, what you and I can do over the next 20 minutes or so? I doubt we can do it all in 20 minutes, <laughs> but we can do our very best. Okay. Well, first of all, tell me about this book that you have coming out. Let's start with that. Sure, sure. So it's a little bit of a random project. Um, I am not a horticulturist necessarily or an illustrator, but I got a hold of a data set that the city has been publishing since 1950 about every street tree that it has. And I work at a data visualization company, so I thought I'd kind of like pop it into the software and see what was up. And um, as I got deeper and deeper into researching the history of different kinds of tree genus in Seattle and just kind of discovering that Seattle has one of the most diverse street tree programs like in Seattle, uh, sorry, in in the country, Uh, I just, I I started uh, putting together some notes. And so that will be the book that comes out next March, 2024. And it will have illustrated maps of 30 neighborhoods. So you can find the oldest and widest uh, street trees in your neighborhood. That sounds great. And we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about it in a year because that sounds like a perfect – we could do a whole hour devoted to that. That would be fun. Maybe get uh, Arthur, Arthur Lee Jacobson to come on too and some other these kind of tree people around the city. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So you're, so you're deep in the data around trees. How did these – when did you, when were you first made aware or when did you first know about these Pike Street cherry trees and, and their interesting backstory? I was looking for different trees to highlight um, for downtown, and I noticed that there were very few cherry trees there. So actually, in total, in the downtown core, not including Belltown, there are only 18 cherry street trees. Hmm. And the data just seemed a little dubious. It said that they had been planted in 1991, and yet... um, you know, I had befriended Arthur Lee Jacobson at this point, and he swore that they had been planted in 1980. <laughs> and he literally swore. I, I know Arthur. He probably literally <laughs> swore they'd been planted in 1980. <laughs> totally, totally. And so um, last year I went back just to kind of confirm whether they really were um, what the city said they were. And in the records, it says that they're sergeant cherries, columnar sergeant cherries. And I went back and they were actually blooming um, at the wrong time and determined that these actually six of them are Kwanzaan cherries and only four are sergeant. And again, talking with Arthur, we think that maybe they started out as sergeant and then as they um, were replaced, maybe with Kwanzaan. So um, the data to begin with was a little bit dubious. And so that's that's when I started getting interested in it. And I started doing some historical research and um I'm embarrassed to say I had no idea that Seattle was basically the Japanese 
flowering cherry gateway to America in the early 20th and, century. And how did that come to you? Is it, is it simply a factor of geography and our proximity to Japan? Or was there actually some person here or people in Japan who were specifically choosing Seattle as a place to route cherry trees into the U.S.? <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit of both. I okay. mean, physically, we were the closest, um, the closest sailing route to Japan. So while San Francisco has kind of like the biggest Japan town, Seattle has like the oldest commercial relationship with Japan that goes back um, further than this, but at least from 1896 when we started the first kind of regular steamship service between Japan and Yokohama. And then um, after that, it just kind of things opened up. And you may not know this either, but we have the oldest judo dojo in continental North America. I've heard we have the first karaoke place in Seattle. <laughs> um, and we also celebrated Japan in the 1909 Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. There is actually a beautiful Shinto shrine gateway that led into the exposition. Um, and on that gateway, it wrote America's Gateway to the Orient. And after that, basically, um, there were a lot of Japanese immigrants. Uh, they made up about half of the dairy products that were served to anyone in King County. They farmed 75% of the county's vegetables. They uh, operated at least a quarter of the hotels in this area. And they were actually the largest minority group in Seattle from 1900 to 1940, because, which is yeah, mind-blowing. Because <laughs> it's 1942 when you have Japanese incarceration from coastal United States. That blows up everything and creates this rupture in the history. Absolutely, absolutely. So basically all the Japanese flowering cherries that came to America landed in Seattle first. So the famous cherries that are in D.C., they came by ship, landed in Seattle first, were taken by train all the way to D.C. Uh, the first shipment what, they found out. What was year infected. was what year was that that they took the trees to D.C. from Seattle? So the first shipment was 1909. There were 2,000 cherry trees. And when they opened them up, they said that they were infested and needed to be uh, burned. <laughs> So oh. that was the first faux pas. And then in 1912, 3,000 more were sent to kind of replace those. And that was the same year that the Plant Quarantine Act was, was issued. So probably not a coincidence there. But essentially, those 3,000 were the beginning of what were planted in the Potomac River Tidal Basin. And the first two trees were planted by um, the wife of the president, Helen Taft, and Japanese ambassador's wife. And they were two Yoshino cherries, and they are still there. Wow. Now, okay, so those two, first two that were planned are still there. Any idea yep. roughly how, what percentage of those 3,000 still survive 100 and, what is it, 11 years later? Very few. Okay. Very few. But those first two were there. Um, I won't quote myself right now, but I want to say lower than 10%. Okay, that's still a fair number, like though. Yeah, 100 years ago. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm pretty, I, I confess ignorance about the cherry trees in D.C. Was that part of, like, L'Enfant's big plan to have trees, or was that something that's more of an early 20th century thing that somebody else decided to do, or...? It was it was a little bit of both. Okay. There was a famous a famous journalist who was very much into cherry trees um, from Japan, and Helen Taft was also a big advocate. And there was someone also in the USDA okay. named David Fairchild. So it was the uh, yeah. the advocating of a couple of different people, I would say. And I imagine. Then, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say that Seattle got you know almost ten different Japanese cherry tree gifts throughout the decade, even after some. Awful things happened, like the 1921 Asian Land Law, which, um, you know, denied Japanese people from owning any property in yeah. Seattle. And 
shortly after that. I think that happened in 1921. In 1929, just eight years after, they gave us a gift of 2,500 cherry trees again. And then there was another gift the following year of 3,000. By the way, one of those Tanzans lasted over 80 years. So just to show you kind of the lifespan possibility there. And there's a large Yoshino that's still at Green Lake from that one. Oh, that's cool. Now, okay, at the University of Washington, now what year were those trees planted and where did they come from? So that's a little uh, interesting uh, story. They originally were part of a gift in 1939. The Arboretum planted them kind of where 520 is today. So when 520 came through, they had to remove them or put them in a different location. That was 1964, and they were planted at the UW Quad at that point. And right now I know that people are concerned about their decline because they've already outlived like their lifespan. It's quite a few decades right now. Huh. And um, and basically, they're trying to graft them and clone those trees so that when they do die, we have clones of those trees that we can plant again. Wow. So the, the campus, the trees on the quad only date to 1964. No, they, the they replanting. were but, but, since but, 1939, but replanted they, in 1964. But they've only been yeah. on the quad since 19, 1964. Yep, Boy, yep, but I know that most crazy. history, yeah. yeah, most history talks about them coming from 1939, but yeah, few people know that they were first at the Arboretum. Okay. Now, uh, what one sort of like kind of a, I guess, a, a, a granular question I had, I know the, the, the 1980 date for planting the trees that are on Pike Street, yep. at least for the next 12 hours or so, at least, um, <laughs> were those, what size were they when they were planted and how old were they when they were planted? Any idea? I know that they were five feet when they were planted. Okay. I'm not sure how many years old they would have been, but um, those came from uh, Japanese Prime Minister Miki Takeo, who actually went to the University of Washington in Seattle in the 1930s. And he had worked as a dishwasher at Maneki Restaurant, which is still standing <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Seattle. So a lot of this is just this crazy <laughs> history is not as long as we think it is. You know, this was not that long ago. <laughs> Um, and so, okay, so the fact those trees were planted in 1980 and that they've yeah. been sort of, um, I don't know, shunted aside until, uh, it, it, it seems like the public process that Waterfront Seattle went through, um, that the people from Save the Market Entrance continually said over the last three or four, maybe five years, these trees are significant, they could live for several more decades. That process seemed to be sort of invalidated when, when Mayor Harrell said, you know, wait, let's, let's not cut them down this past Monday. Yeah. Let's take some more time to have more process. And I know there were a couple of meetings. I think there were at least two meetings of the different groups involved. But then yeah. they, they reached this compromise, which it seems like some people are okay with, some people are still upset about, to remove the trees that are there, replace them with new trees, and then plant another an additional 16 trees elsewhere on the waterfront. Um, do you think, I mean, maybe this is a dumb question, um, do you think if, if the story, the kind of things that you've uncovered and that will be part of your book and that you've been sharing the last couple of days and just here in the last 15 minutes with us, do you think if those stories had been better told over the last decades that there'd be no question that those trees would just be, they'd be there till they died? I mean, they'd be, peop- they'd be preserving them as this sort of continuity of these decades or more totally. than a century of Japanese-American history? Yeah, I think it's absolutely egregious that that history was totally forgotten I mean, how long have they been working on this project? And it never came up that it might be a coincidence that the streets are lined with cherries. Oh, and by the way, Seattle is the cherry tree gateway to Japan. You know, no one thought about that. And this came up last minute. I think that's awful. 
And yeah. I failed to mention that during World War II, most of Seattle's cherry trees were cut down due to anti-Japanese sentiment. And after, you know, the, the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, in 1950, Japan again gave us 10,000 cherries. Uh, it's just an amazing show of friendship and hope and renewal uh, that they continued. And another interesting little point is in 1951, D.C. actually took back cuttings of the cherries that the Japanese had given them earlier in the century, and they sent them back to Japan to replenish those that were destroyed in Tokyo because of the bomb. So anyway, there's this deep, convoluted history, and how did we forget that? Why was this not even considered? So I heard you say kind of we added two process meetings, but in, in my opinion, it sounds like the process was just kind of checking the box and not really getting the right community feedback that we needed when we needed it. And, yeah. you're, and you're right also that I think those trees should be, um, should be cloned or somehow honored. I, I don't think chopping is the right way to do this. Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, somebody pointed out on social media, one comment was like, geez, at least let them have one more season to blossom. I know. <laughs> that just seems absolutely cruel. Um, one thing I, so I, want, I, I want to go back to one thing you said about the during World War II, people cutting down cherry trees because of the yeah. Japanese. So what that says to me is that Japanese or that cherry trees were so closely identified with Japanese culture and Japanese people that they that that they they became a target. That's a really good point. Actually, you're right. It's not that anyone had forgotten it because they clearly remembered it if they were cutting those trees down. That's a great point. And after internment, um, more than one-third of the Japanese from Seattle chose not to come back to Seattle. So it's especially poignant that those trees were planted in the entrance of the Pike Place Market kind of corridor uh, to commemorate, you know, the fact that 75% of the farmers in the Pike Place Market were Japanese. The Pike Place Market um, kind of diminished after World War II because many of the Japanese farmers weren't even working there anymore. So these trees have welcomed people and um, and have a lot of symbolic value. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, that was so strange about the timing, and I talked about this in my doing my, I did a bit about it on the, you know, I worked for Cairo Radio during the week, and we did a little piece Wednesday morning, which I think Tuesday, the day the, the trees got their stay of execution on Tuesday was the same day that the mayor was announcing his tree canopy preservation God. and revival campaign. Oh. Yeah. And, and, this, this, <laughs> and I, I said this on the radio earlier, but this, this split screen of, you know, and they didn't have a press conference, but I love the idea of a split screen where it's, Mayor Harrell and Councilmember Strauss, and they're talking about, you know, the, our tree canopy is in, is in danger. We have to preserve what we have. We yeah. have to plant new stuff. And then on the, the other side of the split screen is the chainsaws coming out to take the trees down at Pike Street. And just would have been like ludicrous. And it's still, it still seems kind of ludicrous. It's totally ludicrous. There was yeah. a point where I was looking at the Seattle Times um, page, and they still have the earlier article from the, in the, earlier in the week where they said that, mm. The cherries had been saved. And then there was another article about the cherries, you know, being chopped down again. And I, I think there was another article in there, too, about street trees. It was from Page <laughs> News. It was like about a palm tree. In oh, West the palm tree at Alka. Yeah. I saw, you know, yeah, I saw yeah. it. I saw on the, yeah, on the Seattle Times app, both the old story and the new story were visible on the yeah, same page. I did. Crazy. I took a screen grab of it because it was so it was such a head. What do they call it? Like a whiplash episode. Um, totally. And the fact that this happens when our own mayor is um, of Japanese heritage, you know, his mother was interned at a camp and this is still happening in our city is absolutely crazy. 
one thing, I mean, I, in your research, I, I don't expect you to have gotten to this level yet. Maybe you have, but was there actually a particular entrepreneur here in town who had, it must have been like a, a depot or something to, to transfer 3,000 cherry trees from a ship to a railroad thing. It wasn't just a matter of moving the freight, or, or was it? Was there, was there a nursery here where they, where they rested or did it go there right from the ship to the thing? There were many nurseries. There were, okay. Yep, many nurseries run by uh, Japanese people, actually. Okay. okay. And one of, one of the big ones, of course, was Fujitara Kubota's gardening company, which started in 1923 and I was just thinking about that today in advance of this show and I was thinking if it opened in 1923 doesn't that mean this is like the 100th year anniversary of Kubota? Oh yeah yeah yeah. It might be yeah. Okay well um, I want to I'm do you think anyone can if there's someone listening to this program tonight or on the podcast later tonight or whatever, yeah. is there anything anyone could do at this point? Or is this compromise that's been reached with the, the different constituent groups in the city? Is it sort of, is that the end of the story at this point for you? I, I think, you know, I think it was the end of the story before any conversations even started. And yeah. that's what's so annoying. I think it was predetermined and everything else about talking to the community was just kind of smoke and mirrors to make it seem like there was something that could be done. But I, I have very little faith at this point. If these if these 11 cherry trees could not be saved, I, I worry about our future in general. Yeah. Um, now, in your other, can you give us a preview of any of your other research? Are there other interesting trees downtown that have sort oh, of God. either hidden or forgotten histories or histories that, that are, you're going to tease out a year from now? I mean, don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. Are there, but are there other trees no, that no, could, that, go ahead. There's so much. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. There's a giant <laughs> sequoia in downtown that actually started out on Aurora. Um, and there are numerous trees with lots of interesting stories. And you can go visit any one of them. And there's there's more than 200 in this book, which, again, will come out in a year. I know that's a long time. And now, and you, but, had, you hadn't done really any work about trees prior to this? That's right. This started out as a pandemic project. Okay. I was bored out of my mind, and I thought, you know, this was something that I had always been interested in. I had always thought, you know, horticultural knowledge gives you kind of the right to belong to a place somehow. You had more knowledge of a place, and so I was always interested in it, and I got into it, and then I met Arthur as soon as things kind of opened up a little bit more. And For those listening who may not know, Arthur Lee Jacobson is the author of Trees of Seattle, and my book will be called Street Trees of Seattle. So a bit of an homage to the master. That makes perfect sense. Now, uh, in, in the work you've done around Seattle, have you had a chance to compare Seattle to places like Portland or San Francisco or Vancouver, B.C., in terms of number of I quality? Have. Yeah. So it's funny because the data isn't fully complete. They don't break out all the trees by species. But based on the data that I have seen, it appears that Seattle has a more diverse street tree population than any other city in the United States is my research so far. And would there be any way to, to point to a reason or a couple reasons or, or factors that might make that the case? Um, I think we have a very temperate climate. And I think that we have a generally diverse population where maybe people have brought trees from where they're familiar um, with those types of trees. But I, I do, you know, I was born and raised here, and I took for granted that it's just totally weird to have, like, a Douglas fir street tree and then a palm tree next to it <laughs> and, like, a maple tree next to that. I mean, it's not normal. Seattle's very yeah. strange that way. <laughs> yeah, especially, if, yeah, if you go through the neighborhoods through some of the places where someone has planted some kind of tree they like or there's something that's just grown up as a volunteer or our, our neighbor for years had would plant their 
get a living Christmas tree and then plant it outside um, in their parking strip. And uh, then the people bought their house and just chopped them down. So oh, I was just, no. I always, I, yeah, I mean, it's always a shame well, to see when, when, a tr- when a tree comes down um, because there's the shade value, especially in these hot summers we've had lately. I've got a, yeah. a, a couple of big cedar trees next door to me that just soak up all the sun and they, they give off this beautiful kind of cedary perfume. And it's, you know, they're, they're dropping the yeah. temperature in that area by at least a few degrees, at least under the tree, there's a shade. And I don't know. It's, it's hard to think of a, a, a more urbanized Seattle um, having fewer trees in it. I mean, I, I don't know how we're going to be able to recognize our city without these kinds of historical touch marks. And just to stick back to cherries, they're, um, it's the second most abundant type of street tree in Seattle. So it makes up 17% of all of our street trees, which is about we have in total about 170K street trees. And they're responsible. Someone actually did the math for this. They're responsible for removing 4 million pounds of carbon dioxide from our atmosphere per wow. year. And it just seems like as we keep getting these heat waves, maybe this isn't such a great time to be chopping down trees. Maybe there's some other better things we could be doing right now. Yeah, because it seems like whatever they do plant there, if this goes forward, um, as it, you know, who knows what will happen with the seesaw here. But if it goes forward, they'll, they'll plant, again, probably five foot tall trees that will take a few decades to get to the kind of stature exactly. that will to exactly. replace what's there now. It can't be equal. Like, new trees are not equal to very large trees, and it's just not sexy to maintain trees. People want to say that they yeah. planted a tree. Yeah. You know, that, that has a lot more pizzazz to it. But, um, but yeah, those little trees, they are not going to replace those 40-year-old trees by any means. And then their idea, I think earlier they said they were going to plant hybrid elms, and that's just <laughs> ludicrous also. If you know much about trees, you know that elms actually require about the same amount of water, if not more, than those cherry trees. And they said something about how the elms were going to arch the Pike Place Market sign. And in my head, I was thinking, how many decades will it take for them to do that? In the meantime, they'll be covering the sign, you know? So it felt not very well thought through. It's a shame, because I love Waterfront Seattle. I love what they have done so far to date with transforming the waterfront and transforming the west side of the Pike Place Market. This feels like a real stumble for them. And I don't don't want to kick them when they're down, but I want to, hopefully they'll... Hopefully they'll learn from this or there'll be something good will come from this. One, another kind of dumb question. I mean, that that story that, that we've been talking about tonight of the deep, deep connection between Japan and the United States, Japan and Seattle in particular, and cherry trees. What a great story. Totally lost the mists of time until you're helping bring it back to light. There's got to be stories like that all over the place. And, of course, your book will help shed light on some of them. Um, I imagine that museums can do stuff, but it, it, I know they're going to put a plaque down there. <laughs> they always, whenever they get rid of something, you know, they always want to put up a plaque. But I know. Not everyone reads plaques. And maybe this is an impossible question, but how do we keep these stories alive? How do we keep them, you know, I mean, the dozens of people tuned in tonight <laughs> on Sunday yeah. night who are probably, you know, missing, missing the Oscars to listen to this live or listening on the podcast now later. Um, I just feel like there's these, the only things that get that survive and that get carried through to the next generation, whether it's a building or a neighborhood or a tree, are where the story comes alive and people like it. It it, it becomes viral and people are telling it to each other and not just relying That's on right. like you or me to 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 be pestering them about it. But it kind of has to take on a life of its own. And I don't know how to do that. I think that you are doing it right now by telling the story. And the more we tell the story in the present moment, the more chance it has to to be relevant. I mean, again, this story was just forgotten completely and left out of the process. So 
we can do a better job, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about your book coming out. I'm um, upset about the way the cherry tree thing has gone. Maybe there's still some hope. Who knows? Maybe maybe Mayor Harrell is tuned in tonight. I don't know if he's a big Cascade of History listener, but perhaps <laughs> someone on his on his staff is paying close attention. Maybe he'll have a change of heart. But it's uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. But I really do. I do appreciate the work you're doing on this book that's coming out next year. Again, it's called Street Trees of Seattle. That's the yep. working title. Okay. Yep. And do you have a website or a blog or something where people could follow your other work or other stuff that you're doing? Not yet, but um, if you if you Google my name Taha T A H A in Seattle, I bet you I'm the only Taha around. <laughs> so you can uh, you can find out other stuff. But yeah, it is a shame that we won't get to see these trees bloom one last time because they're literally like two weeks away, one week away from you, blooming. You know, I'm going to send an email to the mayor's media staff and we're asking for that. Can't they just at least wait for the thing? I know it will delay the project and the corridor yeah. connecting and everything, but you know what's what's really important, right, in this crazy world. Uh, right. It's truly, truly <laughs> absurd, absurd. All right, Taha- but you know they are symbols of hope, so let's let, we'll keep the hope alive. It's true, Taha Ibrahimi. Thank you for joining us on Cascade of History tonight. Thank you so much, Felix. Bye bye. Good, good night. All right, that was Taha Ibrahimi. She's got that book coming out next year, Treat Trees, Street Trees of Seattle, and uh, I don't think the cherry tree story on Pike Street is quite over yet, but who knows? Sounds like it's close. Um, Coming up next, an old hotel in Portland is likely to be demolished tomorrow. Boy, treats being cut down and a hotel being demolished. That's a lot of stuff going on. Anyway, it's a shame because that 1905 building has seen more than its fair share of history. And to tell us about some of that history, we're going to be joined by Chisao Hata from the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. Before we do that, it's time for episode number three in our elongated, drawn-out uh, broadcast of a 1938 program that originally aired on Como 85 years ago. It's all about the then-new JCPenney department store on 2nd Avenue. Uh, JCPenney had been in Seattle for a while, but they built a big new store right at the end of the 1930s, uh, banking on the future right at the end of the Great Depression there. Um, now, if you remember the thrilling cliffhanger from last week, the host of the program had just asked this probing question about how the merchandise was routed within the store. Uh, someone has to buy these things. Someone has to be responsible for saying that they come to Ed's uh, department. Now, who is responsible for that? Who is responsible for that indeed? Well, to find out the answer, we're going to hear installment three of Washington at Work from 1938 on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. Mr. Graham, the merchandise manager. Mr. Graham, the merchandise manager, who is right here by the microphone. Uh, Mr. Graham, we'd like to ask you a question or two. How do people, the buyers under your charge and direction, go about this business of buying these 10,001 items that Ed just mentioned? Well, the first place, they have to write the order. And then they have to follow through and see that the order is shipped as specified. I see. Well, take this woman's hat here. How in the world could your buyer know that this hat is going to be what women will want, say, six or eight weeks from now? Well, of course, Mr. Bradley, we maintain expert buyers in the style centers who in turn present these things to our store buyers here. Now, I suppose in the final analysis, our store buyer buys the hat by hunch, and the women customers, they buy it by instant. <laughs> I see. Well, thank you very, very much, Mr. Graham. Now, we notice that all this merchandise is being placed in dollies, little carts on wheels, the sound of which you probably heard in the background. And we're going to follow the dollies now. We're going downstairs and see what goes on the fifth, or the fourth, the third, the second, the first, and the basement floor. Now. The creation of this large new store means a considerable addition to Seattle payrolls. For employment will be given to many new salespeople, over and above the hundreds already employed at Penny's former location. And for the past several months, too, hundreds of skilled and unskilled workmen have had employment, creating this largest addition in years to downtown Seattle retail business. Dozens of crews of electricians, 
carpenters, decorators, and painters, 100% local labor. We've come down a complete floor now, and we're standing on the fourth floor of the new J.C. Penney store, a very, very beautiful store indeed. And uh, we're standing in the dead center of the department, and I can see in unique cutout letters, which, uh, when illuminated, produce a shadow effect, the words over here on the right, the boys' shop, over in the corner, the nursery furniture, beyond us, the infant's wear department, and over on the other side, to our left, the girls' shop. Now, as we left the stock room, we noticed one dolly full of boys' baseball uniforms. And remember, part of uh, the fun of this broadcast was to trace the procedure of these various items. That's our item for the fourth floor. But, Bob, who do we talk to here? Uh, Mr. Greenfield. And we'll leave it right there. Bob, who do we talk to? Mr. Greenfield. Um, as the merchandise makes its exciting way around the old 1938 J.C. Penney location in downtown Seattle. It's kind of funny what passed for radio entertainment uh, 85 years ago. Um, not, much is, not much has changed. All right. Uh, I am Felix Bunnell, and this is Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM, broadcasting live from Magnuson Park in Seattle in the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, former master-at-arms quarters just above the main gate. It's Sunday, March 12th. Um, if you looked at our Cascade of History Facebook page earlier, you would have learned that the furnace is still not working here at the studios. When I got into the building, uh, you know, it's, there's nobody else here. There's nobody on before me. It's a show on tape before I come in. The temperature in the studio is 51 degrees. It's, it's uh, inched up to 56 degrees with the help of a space heater, so it's a bit more comfortable than it was when I first got here. But, and it's, you don't have to think of that as a, as a reason to give money to Space 101. It's 0.1 FM. It's not that we can't afford to have a, heat, a heater or a furnace, but there's some kind of furnace problem, and that's actually the Parks Department owns the building, and they do that kind of work. So. But if you feel like contributing to Space 101.1 FM, just go to our website, space101fm.org, you can contribute right there, and your money goes to support, uh, pays for the electricity, pays for the phone bill, pays for all the equipment. We're all volunteers here on the air at the, at the radio station, but we do love the support to help, uh, help get the things that money must buy. All right. Well, um, our next guest is, is Chisao Hata. She's a creative director for the Living Arts Program for the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. I'm going to bring her on right now. Let's see if she's there. Chisao, can you hear me? I can certainly hear you. Oh, thank you so much for making time to join us on Cascade of History. You know, we're, we're based here in Seattle, but we try to cover heritage and history and historic preservation in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and British Columbia. And it's great to have a guest on from Portland. I think you're in Portland tonight, I believe, right? I am, yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to um, have us. Well, it's, it's an important story. I don't know if you heard the first part of the show. We, we stream live all over the place. We're not on the air in Portland, but um, we were talking about some Japanese cherry trees that are threatened here or actually slated for being cut down right in front of Pike Place Market that have been there for more than 40 years and that Seattle's got this terrific history of Japanese culture and Japanese commerce going back, you know, well over a century. Um, when I read about the Yamaguchi Hotel... I mean, I, this, the first I read of it was a few days ago. I hadn't, I hadn't paid attention to learn that this had been underway for a while. But for someone who's never heard of it or seen it, what is the Yamaguchi Hotel? Well, the Yamaguchi Hotel is the last standing historic building on a, on a block in historic Old Town, also known as New Chinatown, Japantown, in Portland, Oregon. And it's one of the oldest cultural districts in our city because it's near to where the original port 
um, of Portland was, uh, where most people landed uh, to enter Portland. So many immigrants came in through that port, um, Italian, um, Greek, Roma, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino. And so they were often, um, you know, had to live in that area as well because there are laws that prohibited people from living any place they wanted. Uh, And then eventually, because of many of those redlining laws, Japanese Americans ended up in an area in Old Town that became known as Japantown or Nihonmachi. And Seattle also has a Nihonmachi. And um, at one time, there were 26 Nihonmachis along the West Coast. And I think there's only maybe five remaining. Wow. So, so so that must have meant that they were in all the big cities that I could name off the top of my head, but probably some of the secondary port cities along the coasts of Washington and Oregon and California? Well, Seattle, yeah. Portland. Um, we really don't have a Japantown anymore. Yeah. The Japanese American Museum of Oregon is really the only, um, you know, remaining history uh, that holds, you know, the, the history of Japanese Americans. Of course, uh, Los Angeles, <clears throat> San Francisco, San Jose. Okay. Are some cities. Mm-hmm. And, and, okay, so the Japantown in Portland was established by what year, roughly? Well, Japanese began to came, uh, come to Portland in the eight, late 1800s. And so it was from around the 1920s or a little bit before. Okay. Uh, all the way until 1941, until there were about 300 businesses. There were, you know, hotels, not like we know them today, but where people live. So you, there might be two or three families on one floor sharing a bathroom and a kitchen, and then the businesses and restaurants were down below on the lower floors. But there were um, churches and schools and barbers and community places and dentists and, you know, markets, uh, the first grocery store and, you know, a place where people would bring their goods from the farm to sell fresh yeah. produce. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, I mean, that community is decimated in 1942 through incarceration of Japanese and Japanese-Americans. And does it ever really come back much after that? Uh, it comes back <clears throat> some, but of course, there were laws in the beginning that prohibited people from owning any buildings or any land. Uh, it wasn't until the second generation was born as American citizens that then you know, the first generation began to put, um, you know, things into their name, but it never really truly came back to what it was before. It wasn't possible because people were really discouraged to return back to places where Japanese and Japanese Americans were concentrated. Yeah. They're encouraged to go elsewhere. Uh, and there was a lot of fear still on, upon the release. Um, actually, you had to prove your release. You have to prove that you had a job or a way to, a place to go before you were released. Um, and so that's not a very welcoming environment to think about coming back to, especially if the average age is in their 60s and they lost everything, everything yeah. that they built up. Yeah. 
And so I was I reading that the Yamaguchi Hotel dates to 1905? Yes, and the Yamaguchi Hotel is significant because not only is it the only historical building left on that block, but we do know that from 1921 to 1941, right before the um, uh, executive order, 9066, uh, Masai Yamaguchi was a midwife, and she, you know, did her birthing right there in that hotel. So it has a deep significance to the community because of wow. that. But also it's very close to the train station, uh, and the train station is where, you know, the African-American porters, their their run of their, you know, um, uh, ended there in Portland. And so there was a small African-American um, area as well, right around the corner. And so uh, when those hotels were filled, they often came to the Japanese-run hotels. Wow. So there's a lot of diversity within Old Town, and it, it, it just seems really, you know, well, it's sad to me that these connections would be lost and this history would be taken for granted um, and not taught at all in our history books or not considered part of American history, because it is. It is all of our history. It's not just my history as a Japanese-American, but I feel like it's the stories and the histories of racism that, you know, we've been trying to raise up for years, and um, we would like to think that during this period of social consciousness raising that um, we could, you know, incorporate more of these stories and these histories uh, in a little easier way than the way that we're having to do it. Yeah. And and as I understand it, the legally, the, the Yamaguchi Hotel has sort of reached the end of the line. And you guys had some kind of an event this afternoon there? We had a, I guess, a, a ceremony of sorts to hang cranes along the fences surrounding the Yamaguchi Hotel. So about 50 people came down and uh. hung cranes for almost an hour and a half, and you know, partly in the rain, and, um, you know, a lot of prayers and remembrances of the hotel. And so it's more of a, you know, a remembrance, remembering the people that had lived their lives there, that had come through there, and the rich history that is, held in, in that in that area, in that building, um, that we wanted to take a moment to remember. And and I should have asked you this right up front, but what's the cross streets and roughly what, what landmark might it be near for someone maybe in Seattle who doesn't know Portland super well, but at least visits there and kind of knows where something like, where like Powell's Books is, for instance? Um, well, it's coming off of the Steel Bridge. Okay. Um, it's on 4th. Our museum is on 4th and Flanders. And okay. the Yamaguchi Hotel is on 4th and Gleason, so it's just within the same block okay. and, that we are. And it's we, close to the train station. Okay, yeah, and I, I love that's such a wonderful train station. I love that whole walk, the walk from the train station to Powell's. I've done that so many dozens of times over the years, living in mm -hmm. Seattle and visiting Portland specifically to go to the bookstore. Um, right. What so? What actually happened? Like, who owned the building? Why is it slated to be demolished? Were you guys trying to trying to buy it at some point, or was anyone trying to? What was the? How do we get to where we are? I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's a fairly long. <laughs> I'll try to 
try to say it, and, I, and I'm not the best person to tell this part of the story because there's a lot of uh, city um, regulations and laws and how people, you know, have formulated these uh, land laws um, that probably go back to, you know, the time of redlining. But there is a, a program there called the Blanchet House, and they have a very good program where they feed homeless. And so they, um, I don't remember the exact year, bought the block adjacent to the block, the side of where the Yamaguchi Hotel is, mm-hmm. and built a new facility. And they also previously owned, I think around the 50s, um, purchased the Blanchet House, which was known as the Old Blanchet House, which is also a service program to feed homeless and, um, you know, service homeless in the area. Uh, there was one point in time when the city could have bought back the property, and they didn't. Huh. And so what happened is, which I guess is happening a lot, and it's very sad to see, and it's called demolition by neglect. Yeah, yeah. So the owners, you know, will just let the building go. Um, and, and I think what's really sad for us to see is that there's just no pride. You know, there, there's no pride in the upkeep of the building. There's, it's an intentional uh, letting go and not taking care of it till it gets to the point where, gee, it's, We've lost money. We can't do anything. There's no way to bring it back. So demolition is the only um, course of action when the time that something could have been done um, wasn't done because it kind of acts in their favor as landowners or building owners or even developers to um, let that go. So at some point um, through this Yamakuchi Hotel, we were able to changed some of the um, city regulation to look at how demolition is set forward. So we're hoping because of some of those changes that it'll be harder for other historical buildings to be um, set for demolition due to neglect, due to neglect. And my understanding is, I read some of the. I know, I know, you guys have been working closely with Restore Oregon, which is that terrific statewide nonprofit that does all kinds of historic preservation ad- advocacy all around the Beaver State. Um, and it, one of the things I think I read was that the building itself, it's not like it's architecturally um, some uh, uh, amazing work of architecture. It's a pretty simple 1905 building. But its value Correct. is in its stories and in what happened there. And the, I think in addition to the Yamaguchi Hotel, it was some kind of a um, like a place for sailors, like merchant sailors, like a rest place for merchant sailors or something? Um, most likely it okay. was, like I was saying, people who traveled on yeah. the train. Yeah, and yeah. it's okay. not river. It's very close, very close okay. to the river. Um, and I think that, you know, besides the... Uh, change in the city regulations on uh, demolition by neglect, the conditions that were set by the city council in the effort to demolish this hotel were not really fulfilled um, from 
our understanding mm. from Restore Oregon Architectural Heritage Center and the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. So that's of some concern, that there were some agreements that were made, um, some conditions that were set, and therefore uh, it, there was a process. And the process wasn't followed, um, in our opinion. And so then it caused, you know, the situation where we're hearing within a week that the demolition is taking place, where we should have had more ample notice um, because the stakeholders committee was established. The historian was, uh, you know, writing a report. The stakeholders were to come together again to review that report and, and make recommendations to the city. But it seems that, you know, some some steps were missed there. Um, that's that's a shame because that just that just erodes trust and makes it difficult for anybody on other projects to kind of make progress or feel like there's some you know transparent process of of reviewing these things when they come up and making sure that everyone understands that when there's a historic resource there is there is a there are procedures in place and you can't just ignore those. It creates it ultimately creates so much ill will on this kind of stuff too. Um, so definitely, yeah. Um, so the museum, the Japanese American Museum of Oregon, tell me about what, what, what's there? How long have you guys been in business, and what do you have there at your museum there in Portland? Well, unbelievably, on March 15th, we closed the museum to build a new museum, and that was the same month that the pandemic was announced. So what, you closed three years ago? Mm-hmm. Oh, right before the pandemic. That was, that was brilliant timing. <laughs> But it meant that we had to negotiate how to build out this new space (laughs) that we just during the two years of the pandemic. And that was easy (laughs) Uh, contractors and to get the work done. And so it took quite a bit of time. But we do have a beautiful museum. And like I said, we are the only place left that holds the memory and the stories of Japanese Americans uh, in Nihonmachi in Japantown. So we have a beautiful permanent exhibit. Uh, we have a little store. We have a rotating, what we call a rotating gallery. Mm-hmm. So um, there are different exhibits that go on there. We also have a history that's linked to the Japanese American historical plaza. So that was built first. So if you've ever gone to Portland and you've been along the river and you've seen around March these beautiful cherry trees and we started out talking about the cherry trees. There's a hundred cherry trees there. Um, people know all about the cherry trees, but there is this beautiful um, monument that was built up by landscape architect Robert Morase and uh, Bill Nato, who if you've been down Portland, you may have been on Nato Parkway. Huh. Uh, so it's right along there. There's stones and there's poetry on the stones and and there's uh, part of the stones on one side and then there's a break and then the stones continue on another side and that break includes one large stone that holds the names of the 10 camps where uh, Japanese Americans were sent as a result of the executive order. So that plaza, also known as the, as the Bill of Rights Plaza, came first. And it was dedicated in 1990. And then after that, we, we decided there needed to be a place to hold some of the history. And so 
it gradually grew into a museum and to where we are today. So That's we a- invite everybody to come and, and uh, share in our history and at our museum. We would love to have people come. Do you guys have a collection of do you like collect photographs and oral histories and that sort of stuff as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have a whole archive of photographs. All of our oral histories are on Den Show. So you can yeah. you can find those on the you know, there's a Portland uh, section with the oral histories from Portland. Yeah, and Densho was the project that's been going on for many years. Tommy Cada founded to to gather oral histories and created a huge online database. They they were doing stuff with video and online transcripts and stuff way before, very early Maybe. on. They, they, yeah, they did. They, that's an amazing <laughs> model. I, I I love what Densho has been able to do around. I wish there was equally as deep and broad a oral histories for every community in the Northwest. It's a really it's an amazing project. I think they've really inspired a lot of other work around the country. Um, I'm actually really honored they're taking my oral history uh, next Monday, so I'll be oh, wow. coming up with okay. <laughs> so how's So how long has your family been in the Northwest? Uh, I didn't grow up in the Northwest. Okay. And actually it's a result of my family being um, incarcerated. So my mother and father were in separate camps and eventually brought together at Poston, Arizona. Wow. And married. They were married at Poston, Arizona. So when they were um, when they were released, my mother was a nurse, and she had applied to different hospitals in different states and eventually uh, went to Boulder, Colorado, and then uh, ended up, I guess she went to look for another job interview in Chicago, didn't like Chicago, went to <laughs> Iowa and applied uh, to a hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, where she was hired and met some other Japanese doctors. And that's where I was born in Des Moines, Iowa. But <laughs> my mother was born in uh, in an area right side of Hood River, Parkdale. Oh, and so wow. all of her family, all of her family, in fact, my cousins still run the family uh, orchard. In, in Hood River. I've been to Parkdale before. I rode, we rode the train once from Hood River up to Parkdale. I think for a, like a thing where you, they, you could buy a Christmas tree and they'd put it, load it back in the train for you. But while you yeah. waited in Parkdale, you could have lunch at the Grange Hall. This was like 30, yeah. 30 years ago. Oh, what, what a cool place. It's one of the uh, places where they had the highest number of Japanese wow. farmers, orchardists. Uh, you know, Oregon... Oregon um, fruits and vegetables, close to 70% of them that were grown prior to World War II were grown by Japanese-American farmers. Yeah, and boy. And it's what's not known, right? And all that land that was lost um, that had to be given up or taken, uh, we yeah. don't know all the individual stories, but um, we do know that uh, they provided a lot of food for everybody. Yes, yeah, same was true here in Seattle. Um, now, so your mom was in Parkdale. Where was your dad? My my father was actually born in Honolulu. Oh, but then wow. he settled in Los Angeles, and they met and pre-med in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. They, oh, they met in Walla Walla. <laughs> yeah, it, it was Walla Walla College, I believe, was a That's great. pre-med Adventist uh, college. Wow. And my dad didn't like blood, so that was that. 
<laughs> and then my mom went on to become one of the first Japanese American nurses in Oregon, um, definitely in Portland in 1939. Wow, that's what a great story. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's just an American story. That's why I see. I I just I covet all the stories. I mean, that's the thing. It's like all these different histories that have been hidden away or that aren't talked about as much as they should be because there's some dark chapter. And I don't, and I think the story of Japanese and Japanese American incarceration, that story has been brilliantly told again and again. It needs to be and should be continually, continually told. But I just love because they're American stories. It's like, you know, people trying to make yeah. their way in the world, meeting their their future spouse. And, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's... My, mo- my grandmother was a picture bride. Oh, wow. So, you know about that history, the laws prohibited women from coming to America unless they were married. So the Japanese devised a system where they exchanged photos, uh, and then they were married by photos in Japan. Wow. So the woman could get all the correct legal papers, and then she was able to come to America to meet the husband she never met. Um, for That's, the first time. Isn't that crazy? Off, Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't. I do have a connecting story to Nihon Machi, and that is my mother was the oldest of eight children, actually nine. Okay. But my grandmother died in childbirth with her ninth. Oh, my goodness. And my mother was 16. So, you know, in those days, it was seen that the oldest daughter would be raising or help to raise the rest of the family rest of the children yeah but my mother always wanted to be a nurse she, i guess she never talked about anything else and i think it was because she was sickly when she was young and so my grandfather took her to nihon machi to find out where the resources were who she should talk to who she should talk to how he could get her into a, a college and that's how she was able to go to walla walla and become one of the first Japanese American nurses, but I give my grandfather, Gunichi Tamiyasu, a lot of credit for having the the guts, really, at that time, I think, to let his oldest daughter leave. Yeah, with all those kids around, too. Jeez. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're just about out of time for tonight's episode of Cascade of History, but I want to thank you for coming on. In just a few seconds we have left, Yamaguchi Hotel, is it is it lost, do you think, at this point, permanently? Well, it's scheduled to be demolished. We knew that. Um, We're questioning the process. We want to uplift the history and continue to tell the stories, especially of the samba, of the midwives, um, that played an important role in Japanese-American history. And And my last question for you, very quickly, what's the web address if people want to follow what you guys are doing? JAMO.org. Terrific. A-A-M-O right. dot org. Shisao Hata from the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. And let's have you back on the show again sometime. I'd love to hear more about what you guys are doing at the museum. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Terrific. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. I want to thank all of our guests, both of our guests tonight, uh, Taha Ibrahimi and talking about the Pike Street Cherry Trees and the book she has coming out a year from now, Street Trees of Seattle, and Shisao Hata with the Japanese-American Museum of Oregon. Similar stories, in a way, about uh, stories that are lost when resources are lost or st- opportunities to still tell stories even better and share stories and keep stories alive and just, you know, use history phys- physically and viscerally to get people engaged in, in their communities and not give up on things like 
beloved trees or beloved old buildings. So, all right, well, we've uh, come to the end of another episode of Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're on Space 101.1 FM. Join us again uh, next Sunday night. Our scheduled guest will be Pete Blecka talking about the early history of rhythm and blues in Seattle. He's got a new book out called Stomp and Shout from University of Washington Press. Join us next Sunday night here on Cascade of History. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.